Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Henry Mance, the FT's Chief Features Writer, standing in for Gideon Rackman while he's on holiday. This week, we'll be looking at international efforts to combat climate change in the run-up to the United Nations Climate Change Conference later this year, more commonly referred to as COP28. My guest in this week's podcast is Fahana Yameen, a lawyer who has worked in and around international climate talks for more than 30 years. Fahana has advised governments including the Marshall Islands and Samoa. She is also a climate activist who has campaigned with Extinction Rebellion. So, will there be fireworks on the road to COP28? A world that requires real commitment and pragmatic solutions. There is no planet B. It's time for action. Join us at COP28. Now, if you pay any attention to climate negotiations, you'll know that things have been getting pretty heated. The next major UN talks are being hosted by the United Arab Emirates. And the UAE's chosen president for the talks is Sultan al-Jaba, who also happens to be the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, So here he is addressing the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum in January. The UAE approaches this task with humility, a clear sense of responsibility, and a great sense of urgency. Like all countries around the world, the UAE is exposed to the risks of climate change. But... Al-Jaba has resisted talking about the need for phasing out fossil fuels. Instead, he talks about cutting fossil fuel emissions. Now, that has led him to be condemned by climate activists and by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres for placing too much faith in untested carbon capture technology. Here's Guterres speaking last month. Let's face facts. The problem is not simply fossil fuel emissions. It's fossil fuels, period. The solution is clear. The world must phase out fossil fuels in a just and equitable way. So, I began by asking Fahana how unusual it is for a major oil producer like the UAE to host a COP summit. It's not unusual at all. In fact, we've seen a concerted effort by oil, coal and gas producing countries to host these summits. So, for example, Poland has hosted three COPs in in the last 10 years, in 2008, 2013, 2018. Qatar has hosted a COP. Egypt, although it's not an OPEC member, I think, has hosted very recently a COP. So it's a very important meeting, and we're finding that more and more influential posts, of which the presidency of the COP is the most important, are being grabbed by richer countries with bigger budgets, bigger diplomatic teams. So is it the case that the UAE is being sort of singled out unfairly for criticism, given that history, and that the president of the COP maybe is not any worse than people have gone before him? No, I think the criticisms are justified because, first of all, he hasn't given up his day-to-day responsibilities 
and most COP presidents step back because the intensity of the job itself is so demanding with huge numbers of consultations, international travel, bilaterals going on. So there's that. And then secondly, the job he is continuing to do is the head of a national state-owned oil company. And that really is a complete direct conflict of interest. And that is what has provoked a lot of adverse reactions. He's the president-designate, so he doesn't get elected until day one of the conference. But he's a servant to the parties. He's meant to be our officer. And so he's not meant to represent anything. And that perception that he may bring with him a whole load of other baggage, a whole load of other interests, and you know, not be able to divorce himself from the day-to-day interest is really quite valid. I think, you know, there's been um, a lot of problems that have emerged over the separation on a day-to-day basis of emails, IT systems. And if you can't even do that, you know, you're very unlikely mentally to be able to make that break from being a servant to the international community, having this post and being able to deliver all of the party's needs, not just your own particular perspective. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying that Adnoc, the oil company in question, is planning to put, I think, $150 billion in capital investment into increasing oil output. So that's much more than the renewables group, which has also got a lot of attention in UAE which is increasing its spending, but by a much smaller figure. And there have been controversial appointments such as David Canzini, who worked as a lobbyist for Boris Johnson at the time when Boris Johnson as UK Prime Minister was opposing an oil and gas tax. So the criticism is broad based. Let me just make the case for the defence. Is it possible that the UAE being very sensitive to its international reputation has an interest in this working? It doesn't want these talks to be a failure. It doesn't want all the world leaders to fly in and then to come away with nothing. Absolutely. Countries are very sensitive. One of the reasons they hold these summits is for the prestige to showcase their own country's track record or their own pathway to a green society. And there are many different things going on in the UA. The UA hosted international climate summits in the preparation to Paris. I think the times have moved on, and that's the difficulty going into what is the biggest milestone that Paris established as a pathway to getting the 1.5 degree goal to being on target for that, this thing called the global stock take. And every metric possible is showing that we're off track. So I think this particular summit is meant to deliver much more ambition across not just finance, but also really this key issue that has evaded many different COPs now, which is tackling emissions at source. And the biggest source of emissions is fossil fuel emissions. And have you got any sense or is there any evidence that Al Jaba is warming to his role as COP president-designate? Is he doing the rounds? Is he doing all the diplomacy? Is he kind of sensing out people's bottom lines in the kind of way you might expect for this role? I think they've got a huge team and there's huge commitment and huge amounts of talent being drafted in to help him deliver this very key summit. But they've been quite quiet. So the recent two weeks of meetings that were held in Bonn, which are really the biggest preparation meetings before the COP itself, you know, the UAE were quiet. They didn't help particularly solve the procedural and other agenda items that you would have expected them to be solving in a much more proactive way. And again, having been to nearly all of the COPs, apart from a couple, it sometimes it does take a little while for the incoming presidency to sort of establish its team and its credential, get up to speed and feel familiar. But actually, they feel very much to be on the back foot. And it's not just that they're listening. 
And quite often they seem to be saying all the right things. You know, it's like they're reading the right notes, but don't seem to have grasped what really is needed. So I hope a lot more work is going on behind the scenes that I haven't seen. But I think publicly we need a lot more oomph and a lot more upfront leadership from this incoming presidency than has been evident so far. So what are the big issues on the table? What are the the kind of things that the parties are hammering at each other about at the moment? You know, the headlines after COP28 ends will be, did the richer countries commit to more finance, especially for loss and damage? So finance is a big, big issue. As you know, the Glasgow Summit COP26 made some progress on establishing this loss and damage fund, didn't quite get there. And then the COP last year in Egypt did establish that fund. So a key litmus test will be whether that fund is operationalised and how it will be operationalised. This additional financial commitment, which has been so elusive and has been really one of the key tests of the integrity of the system, is this $100 billion. It was a commitment made in 2009 at the COP15, the Copenhagen summit, which collapsed, which was due to be delivered from 2020 onwards, which hasn't been delivered. So although around $80 billion has been committed to and pledged, it still hasn't been delivered and it's now 2023. So I think there's huge frustrations that it has not been delivered. And the biggest elephant in the room is the level of emissions are absolutely nowhere near on track to two degrees, let alone the 1.5, which is a safer limit. And the window for reducing those emissions, getting them under control is diminishing, as the scientists keep telling us. So this COP has to explain to the general public why that's happening and make a very big leap forward under this thing called the global stock take, the GST. National targets were meant to be ratcheted up once after Paris from 2015 to 2020. That didn't really happen. And now this is the last chance to raise them again before 2030. So if low ambition and inadequate targets are locked in now and they're not raised, we're basically completely shafted in terms of the promises that were made and the legally binding commitments. So this COP has a lot to solve, but the ambition in terms of mitigation and ambition in terms of the delivery of finance are going to be the key litmus test. So you mentioned the money, $100 billion, which if it was due in 2020 will now be uh, eroded anyway by inflation. Whose fault is that 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 money hasn't been delivered? The main culprits are the USA and currently Australia also has not paid. You've also had an announcement by Rishi Sunak recently that the UK will not be delivering what it intended to deliver. So some of the richest countries in the world, especially those who have claimed and are trying to claim climate leadership, are in fact reneging. So the, the US, which has found huge amounts of money for domestic environmental support subsidies and the UK, as you say, which sees itself as a climate leader. And we recently saw the resignation of Zach Goldsmith as a minister with, who had particular interest in environmental issues, but saying that effectively what Rishi Sunak was doing was making it impossible for a future government to meet its target. And I suppose there is a sort of a history of rich countries making financial commitments at big summits and then not living up to those. And so maybe is this just a sort of following the rule of you know, you can make a commitment, you don't necessarily have to go through with it. Yeah, I think what I've witnessed in the last 30 years is richer countries tend to make bigger announcements and bigger pledges and under-deliver. And developing countries are far more cautious and make fewer commitments, fewer pledges or lower pledges and over-deliver. Including very large countries like China, India, they are consistently overachieving their targets from the very beginning. And they're saying... We're not going to follow and make these bigger 
targets until you achieve what you were meant to do. This is to richer countries. And often that's been a very negative dynamic, this sense of underperformance on the one side and overperformance on the other. And then this insistence by developing countries that richer countries take leadership, which is part of this historic leadership role that richer countries are meant to play to reflect the fact that they were meant to compensate for 300 years of additional coal, oil, you know, industrialized deforestation emissions and haven't done that. China's just overachieved its targets that it set itself. India's on course to overachieve its renewables targets. All of these countries that are sometimes seen as the culprits and as the biggest emitters who are not doing their fair share are more than doing their fair share. We actually had an interview with Pete Betts, who is longtime UK climate negotiator, now sadly with very limited time given to live by doctors. And he's sort of looking back on his life. You know, one of the things he said he'd learned from negotiations was, and I'm going to quote here, that nobody criticizes the pledges unless they're made by developed countries. There should be a much bigger spotlight on the failure of countries such as China, whose emissions are bigger than those of the entire developed world, to seriously strengthen their commitments. So you're saying the opposite, in fact. You're not agreeing with Pete Betts then. No, I love Pete Betts, but I think China has consistently over-delivered So they're very cautious, and this represents an international relations philosophy on the part of developing countries that they have yet to take their place fully as leaders on the international stage and in terms of the climate issue, that others should go first. So they calibrate their targets in relation to the richer developed countries. And most civil societies, I think the ordinary person on the street would recognize that actually as richer countries and those who have caused a greater share of the problem historically, we should take more of a leadership role. Um, And what are the chances we see in some quarters a backlash against net zero, against renewables investment? I mean, I think of the big oil companies, BP, Shell, Exxon, all seem to be retreating, particularly in light of the Ukraine war. What are the chances that a big cop of the big oil producers, the Saudi Arabias, um, you know, the Australia, a typical laggard, etc., just really derailing progress? Or will things most likely plod along, there'll be agreement, but it's just insufficient? I think there is a serious risk that they will derail. They do their best to not be found out or to have the blame of a derailment put on others. And that is, again, a battle of the PR and the lobbyists and those doing the media control. So, you know, Copenhagen collapsed and it was China that got the blame primarily. But I think many of the laggards in the climate regime have been the OPEC countries, often directly provoked or egged on or supported by the US. So in the end of the day, we know that geopolitically, the US has enormous clout over those countries who are on the front lines of this direct dependence on gas and oil, but also other coal-producing countries, for example, Poland, that's why they've had three different COPs at three different stages, have tried to sometimes use the presidency to, you know, to exercise control, both political control as well as procedural control. And who can really push progress forward? I mean, the EU has liked to think of itself as a force for good in the climate arena, There's some talk about sort of stepping away from the COP's consensus-driven process and focusing more on sort of coalitions of the willing countries that are prepared to go beyond the lowest common denominator. Where do you see the potential force for good in the process? Well, you know, we wouldn't have any of the climate treaties if it wasn't for the small island states and increasingly the least developed countries. A grouping of 
around 100 vulnerable countries altogether, you know, many of the smaller Latin American countries, they've been the ones who've tried to push all of the larger emitters. So the larger emitters, increasingly the G20, are on the real firing line. And it's very hard to push those countries to do more if you're a tiny economy and you don't have a political clout other than if you band together. So we see increasingly larger coalitions of those countries coming together. I've often also worked as an advisor to something called the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is now 58 countries representing, I think, about 1.5 billion people, only 5% of global emissions, but they have a lot of clouds. And they do work very closely with the European Union because historically, then politically, and you know, there are many ties between the EU and the ACP countries or the UK and the Commonwealth countries. So there are sort of alliances that build up as a result of those. And some of those are deliberately fostered to try and break through the procedure log jams that are imposed. Now, many people remember the Glasgow COP as a success. Boris Johnson certainly saw it as a success as part of his legacy. You were closely involved and you saw what happened. What did happen, particularly afterwards, that made it sort of a less positive experience? Well, many of the big announcements have unraveled. Many of them were quite shaky, these announcements. The deforestation announcement was quite shaky. But, you know, there was a very well orchestrated boom, boom, boom on day one, day two, day three of COP26. So the deforestation announcement was to end tropical deforestation effectively. and that hasn't happened. Boris Johnson thought he had countries signed up to that, but... The fine print was that they signed up with the understanding that there would be financial support for them to end deforestation. It doesn't end overnight. And the same has been the case with what we're calling the just transition agreements. So there was a very big announcement to reduce the reliance on coal by South Africa, a really pioneering deal, again, brokered very much by the UK, Germany, South Africa itself, which was seen as a model for many other countries. And again, that has got bogged down and is unravelling for a number of reasons, but also mainly because there isn't enough money to fund what is needed at this point. So this very diminishing $100 billion, it sounds like a very big tantalising sum, but in fact, the world economy operates in trillions of dollars and the investment cycle is, you know, very huge in terms of very large infrastructures needed for fossil fuels. You can see why some donors might be sceptical of putting lots of money into the South African energy system at the moment, given the chaos and sadly alleged corruption that's been going on. But I want to move on if I can. You're by training and background a, a lawyer. And one of the ways in which some people think that you could really move towards a net zero is by launching lawsuits, by tying the polluters up in knots. Arnold Schwarzenegger came out recently and said, you know, the oil companies, are, you know, just like the tobacco firms, they knew this was harmful back from, I think, 1959, he said. Are you optimistic about those lawsuits and the role they could play? Absolutely. More and more lawsuits are happening across the world using different types of legal procedures, whether it's against shareholders, where it's company directors. We also are seeing more and more of them being successful and finding for plaintiffs. So I think that even the judiciary has realised, you know, that they have to answer to the demands of justice that are going around. So many countries have been found to be in breach of their own climate commitments or of those commits have been found inadequate, like the Dutch government, for example, like the UK government. Um, there's increasing, you know, demand for scrutiny. And again, net zero is criticised, but actually I was one of the 
people who initiated this idea and got it enshrined in the Paris Agreement. And one of the reasons was so that it could exert pressure and provide a quantified way of assessing progress. Likewise, with companies, there is now a big metric. So whilst companies may be doing greenwashing and trying to get away with as little as as possible, in the end, there's a massive demand for them to actually come cleaner and cleaner and to have more stringent emissions. So having said that, I don't think litigation alone will solve the problem in time. Uh, Litigation works best as one of the remedies. It can also be quite piecemeal. It can also take decades sometimes, especially when you're up against opponents with very deep pockets who are launching very dirty and very expensive suits or countersuits in return. So many of the fossil fuel companies are doing what we call slap suits, which is trying to stop, you know, very deliberately public interest litigation from taking place. They often are attacking individuals. They obviously have the money to, you know, buy huge lobbying power and huge PR power in return. Um, And I think you're seeing also the frustration with the court system in the way in which Nonviolent civil disobedience is happening, and courts regard to those committing nonviolent civil disobedience. Many of the people who were tried by juries for their role in the Extinction Rebellion in 2019, 2020, obviously we had lockdown, there was a bit of a delay. Many of those were acquitted by juries because juries understood and were able to say, you know, I think they've got a point. Let me ask you about your journey because you spent time in. Climate negotiations, which I know take a huge amount of patience and you have a lot of technical detail, you have to be very conciliatory to people, all that stuff. And then in 2019, April 2019, you tried to superglue yourself to the Shell headquarters. Sadly, in your case, fell just short but got the pavement. Was that a difficult transition to go from a constructive member of international negotiations to being disruptive on the streets? Yeah, yeah. Um it was quite nerve-wracking and it took quite a lot of courage and it took three failed attempts. So I tried to get myself arrested before. <laughs> and then by the time it was the big rebellion in April, I thought I really have got to do something <laughs> which is going to get me arrested. And in fact, being stuck to the pavement took far longer to remove me than glass because superglue just in the end melts of glass. It doesn't stick to glass. So that's why you're also finding some of the tactics have changed. People are locking on or using different methods if they really want to cause disruption. But in my case, I think the journey was a lot longer. I was part of the strategy team and the political team that helped plan the April rebellion. We, in fact, had the support of many NGOs who themselves did not want to do nonviolence or disobedience, but were absolutely sympathetic. In many cases, provided resources, provided encouragement, because they understood at that particular time, you know, nothing else was working. The traditional means of petitions, of writing to your MP, of having marches, all of those had failed. And by 2019, we were four years after Paris, and this government had not legislated for net zero. And for me personally, that was a huge source of frustration and shame. And shortly after you were detained in April 2019, the UK did legislate, Theresa May put net zero into law. There's now a narrative that Extinction Rebellion was effective at first, but that the public is tired of their tactics and particularly of Just Stop Oil, the sort of radical offshoot, and that they are are becoming in some way counterproductive to the climate cause. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, likely next prime minister in the UK, has really distanced himself and said, just stop to Just Stop Oil. 
Do you feel that the hardcore activism is turning people off? It's definitely divisive and it's polarising. I wish it were the case that it wasn't necessary anymore. The UK's own watchdog, the Climate Change Committee, which oversees oversight of the Climate Change Act, said the UK is completely on track to breach its net zero goal. Um, So, you know, I don't understand when people say stop doing this, what else they're actually saying should happen, because politicians and the large corporates have completely defied legal commitments that were enacted as a result of democratic processes. And although I'm not at the forefront of the non-violence of disobedience anymore. I'm absolutely sympathetic to those who do that and absolutely salute their courage in doing that. So in summary, whether you're in the climate negotiations in the UAE or wherever else, or whether you're on the street outside Shell headquarters, it's part of the same the same struggle. Yeah, the inside-out tactics are normal. That's what happens. And actually, democracy itself was established as a result of non-violence of disobedience and actually... What was odd was that climate change had not. And that's because climate change had come primarily as a result of scientific advice to all of the world's governments. So it hadn't bubbled up from the street. It was an issue because physicists and chemists and meteorologists noticed the changes in the world's atmosphere after the fossil fuel industry already knew about them, of course. And they instructed the world's governments to, you know, get treaties in place. So the street level action has had to come later, in effect, but it's now sort of necessary. So sadly, the scientists were not listened to. If we were listened to 30 years ago, we wouldn't be in this position. And those poor protesters wouldn't have to be arrested at all. That was Fahani Yameen ending this edition of the Rackman Review. And you can find FT articles relating to today's podcast in our show notes. For a limited time this summer, we are making those articles free to read for all Rackman Review listeners. So click the links in our show notes to make the most of this summer offer and enjoy more of the FT's international journalism with no paywall. That's it for this week. I'll be standing in again for Gideon next week with a very different guest. So please keep listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.